Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn in it to Psalm chapter 1. We are taking a brief break this week from our journey through the book of Daniel. And I have a question for you. Are you thirsty or thriving? That's the question I want us to be wrestling with this this morning. Uh, One of the reasons for our little detour is practical. Like uh, we mentioned, uh, we are going to be doing some different stuff in the coming weeks. In a few hours, I am leaving with my family on vacation, which I am very excited about. Um, And then the week after that, we'll be in the park. So kind of the calendar dictated that we take a little pause as we work through our Old Testament book. Uh, But I also, I think it is really good for us sometimes to come up for air, if that makes any sense. We have been, for the last nine weeks, navigating some strange stories, some freaky visions, some odd dreams. And it's actually been endlessly fascinating. And while there's been complexity, I do think that the, the lessons the Lord has had for us have been profound and clear and encouraging. But there are days that, you know, I just enjoy, I look forward to having something that is simple to unwrap, easy to digest, and that doesn't require that much chewing. I'm deeply impressed how you guys have navigated these visions, but this morning we're going to take a smaller bite, something that's familiar to many of you, and see what word the Lord has for us. So I encourage you to listen as I read for us Psalm chapter 1. And this time as I read it, just kind of let the words of this text wash over you. Try to just kind of soak in the whole vibe of this prayer. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word for us this morning. And we praise the Lord that he is a a faithful God who speaks. So at the center of this psalm are two Different potential pictures of your life. In one, you're a tree transplanted into rich, loamy soil beside a stream of living water. You're rooted and at rest in a favorable location. You're experiencing stability and and some level of serenity. You're also growing in height and strength and wisdom. 
You're producing beautiful, delicious, sustaining fruit. And your vibrant leaves aren't falling out. It's a vision of flourishing and thriving. But we're also given a second picture that we could possibly be living in. And that's of chaff blowing in the wind. Now, you might not be too familiar with that word chaff. It's an agricultural term. It's that coarse outer husk that's kind of on the outside of a cereal grain like wheat or oats. Have you ever had kind of the whole oat oatmeal and you're eating and then you get that little hard thing that gets stuck between your teeth? That's a little piece of chaff. And you can't eat it. So in order to turn your wheat into flowers, in order to get from this grain something that is edible and nourishing, the chaff has to be separated from that wheat. You have to get the inedible away from the nutritious part of the plant. And no joke, this is how that process happens. In the ancient world, they would take wheat, they would beat it, they would stomp on it, and then they would throw it into the air. And the technical terms are, are threshing and winnowing. So to thresh the grain, you'd beat it with a stick or a flail, then you'd trample it under your feet. Sometimes the farmers would intensify the process. They would drag across these heavy boards called sledges, heavy boards of wood that had like sharp stones and bits of metal and shards of glass embedded into it. And then after all that trauma, the farmer would come with their pitchfork, they would pitch the wheat into the air. And they usually would do this in an exposed place, like a hilltop, and they would subject that grain to the full force and fury of the wind. And the, the grain, the edible part, is heavy, so it falls pretty quickly to the ground. But the chaff is light, and it gets scattered easily by the wind. Bless you. So now consider these two images that the psalmist puts in front of us. They're two depictions of our possible existence. And as you think of the season that you're in at the moment, what picture does it feel like you're living in? Are you planted, fruitful, sustained, or do you feel like life has beaten you down? Has the world trampled you underfoot and left you victimized and wounded? Maybe you feel that with all your kind of pain and trauma, you've just been tossed into the teeth of the wind and you're being blown this way or that. You're not grounded. You're not effective. You're not drawing joy or hope, purpose or peace from a source of living water. So I ask, are you thirsty or are you thriving? And to add to that, what choices did you make to get here. I'm reminded of something the Lord told the prophet Jeremiah at the very beginning of his ministry. 
God declared in Jeremiah 2, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So not only have my my people, my children, abandoned their true source of life and thriving and wandered far afield. But now as they're in their self-imposed exile, now as they're experiencing their demanded independence, they're forced to dedicate all of their effort to capturing and retaining whatever fickle rain or moisture their environment provides. God says, what are you guys doing? It's futile. Your, your little reservoirs that you're digging out, they, they leak. And that long-sought water that you're pursuing just keeps evaporating in the heat of the day, and it leaves you more often than not parched. How do you hear God responding in that situation? (laughs) Well, that stinks to be you. Enjoy the consequences of your actions. How dare you spurn me? You're nothing without me. For many of us, that's the voice of God that lives inside of our head. And that's awful. That's the voice of a uh, harsh and vindictive father not the loving God we find in the pages of Scripture. Remember how the psalmist concludes this psalm. He says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think the way I prefer to paraphrase the Hebrew here is that the Lord shows his people how to live, but the wicked have lost their way. Remember, he alone knows the ways of life. And the rest of us, we're looking, but we're not finding until we find our answer in him. And I truly believe that. If you're thirsty and you've lost track of the source of living water, Christ is not stingy. He does not withhold it until we've proven ourselves and gotten our act together. He offers it to us freely. Just listen to Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John. He says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink. This is him at the well with the Samaritan woman. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He says, ask and I'll give it to you and you'll never be thirsty again. Or he'll say it this way a little later in John. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Come to me and drink. Believe in me and you'll experience a life-sustaining fountain that overflows from within you. So how do we come to Jesus then and drink? How do we find ourselves transplanted beside that stream? And I actually think our psalm reverse engineers the process for us. So let's look at those opening verses again. It starts this way. Blessed is the man who walks not. Blessed, happy, well off, satisfied, contentedly at peace is the person who does not walk down this particular road. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So according to the psalm, we we don't lose our way all at once. It's this process. And we see a progression here in these verses. First, we kind of see a progression of the verbs. Out the outset, our unnamed individual is, is walking. They're just passing through. But then they stop and they become stationary. Whatever momentum they have has become halted. Now, they're just standing around. But they've not yet committed to getting comfortable here. But soon enough, they've decided to pull up a chair and they've begun to settle in. They've started making a home in this place. They've progressed from walking to standing to sitting. The nouns progress too. It starts with that word, the wicked. And that's kind of a general term that means disjointed, irregulated, ill-regulated, deviating from rightness and wholeness. You're, You're outside of God's creational intent for you. But soon it progresses from wicked to to sinner, to someone who misses the mark, to someone who actively chooses the wrong way. And then that ultimately will upgrade to scoffer, which is someone who's just arrogantly unwilling to accept any instruction. So I'd map this drift from living water in this way. First, you permit evil advice to infect your thinking. Second, you begin to adopt aspects of a worldly lifestyle. Finally, you find your community and your identity among those who mock God. I can think of kind of a, a biblical example of this, but it's a deep cut. Do you know the names Ahab and Jezebel? In the generations before Daniel, Ahab and Jezebel were the king and queen of Israel. They were ruling there in the northern kingdom. This was when there was two kingdoms in the land of Israel. And Ahab is one of God's people's faithless kings. And he kicks off his reign with a marriage alliance. He, he marries the princess of the Phoenicians, which is the kingdom directly to the north of Israel. 
Uh, His new wife is the heiress of a great maritime shipping empire. Her kingdom essentially has a monopoly on all of the trade across the Mediterranean. She was this powerful player, and her, her riches and her status made her an influential ally for the newly crowned Ahab. But this woman Jezebel, who's now queen in Israel, cares nothing for the God of Israel. She's zealous for her own gods, which were Baal, the storm god, and Asherah, a goddess of fertility, which basically means she worships the gods of sex and power, and she encourages Ahab to do the same. So while their names might not be familiar to you, you probably also know the third guy in this picture, which is Elijah, the man, the prophet that God rose up to speak against them. But if you flip to 1 Kings 21, and you don't have to, I'll just tell you the story, we discover that there's some drama going on with one of King Ahab's home improvement projects. He wants to expand his backyard. He wants to add a vegetable garden. So he's looking at his neighbor's vineyard that's beside him. He's like, you know what? If I had that, I could do my project. It would work perfect. So he approaches his neighbor, which is some dude named Naboth. And he makes them this good faith, generous offer for his vineyard. He says, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth is not interested in selling, but his refusal is rooted in something more than just like nostalgia. For him, it's this theological thing. Because for God's people, They viewed the land as a gift from their God. When God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and settled him in the promised land, he, he took this community of rescued slaves and he made a covenant with them, a special relationship. And part of that special relationship was that he gave each and every family a parcel of land that was a gift for each and every generation. It was not to be sold, it was not to be transferred, but kept and cherished and cared for. So Naboth's not trying to be kind of a jerk about it, he just can't say yes. He's coming from a different value system. And if you know the story, Ahab leaves the whole encounter just bummed. And he goes home and he throws himself a little pity party as a grown man-child. He mopes. He stops eating. He wants everyone in the whole palace to know how upset he is that his plans were thwarted. But his wife Jezebel is having none of it. She marches right in to kind of snap her husband out of his funk and she says, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Theirs is a catalytic relationship. Jezebel gets the king moving, but what's so striking to me is she's not, you might say, a bad friend. She might be a toxic partner, 
but she's not a bad friend. Do you get the distinction? In fact, Ahab and Jezebel's bond uh, exhibits many good characteristics. They're united around a shared heartbeat. But that heartbeat is a passion to rule and a devotion to the gods of sex and power. They do experience a deep intimacy and they're fiercely devoted to one another. But their loyalty to each other comes at the expense of anyone who would get in their way. And they spur each other forward. But it's forward down the path of destruction, not forward down the way of life and hope and peace. Do you now govern Israel? She's saying, aren't you the king? Act like it. But like I said, she doesn't know the ways of the God of Israel. What does it say in Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. She doesn't fear God. She doesn't have that anchor, that value system. She just knows what happens back home in Phoenicia. In Phoenicia, it's assumed that the king owns all the land, that everyone just held it at his pleasure. Back home, the king's word was law. His every wish was the policy of the state. So she's dumbstruck by Ahab's actions. She says, don't you know your rights? How dare you let that little man dictate what you do with your life and your kingdom? You want a vegetable garden? Take it. Eminent domain. You deserve it. Trust yourself. Don't let anyone cramp what feels right to you. You're the king. It's not their place. Don't, they don't get to speak into your life. You do what you want. We all have friends like this. We have friends that are for us, that want what they think is best for us. They want to see us reach our potential. They want us to be happy. But, but their advice is awful, their influence is detrimental, and their help is destructive. You know what Jezebel does? She gets her hubby his vegetable garden. She bribes two random thugs in the market to publicly accuse their neighbor of cursing God and the king. So he's brought up on blasphemy and treason charges, and he's executed as an enemy of the state. And Ahab gets to take possession of his vineyard for free because it is forfeit by his treachery. What's wrong there besides the murder, deceit, and theft? <laughs> Which is a big thing. Neither Ahab or Jezebel took God into the equation at all. They didn't care for his perspective on the matter. They didn't care that in God's economy, the land is his, not the king's. They didn't remember that in God's kingdom, all men and women, the high and lowly alike, are held to account. That no one wields absolute power except God. And God, in his power, demands justice and mercy and peace, especially from those in positions of authority. 
Ahab had community, but they weren't the sort of friends that he needed, the sort that would speak God's word into his life. First, you permit evil advice to infect your thinking. Second, you begin to adopt aspects of a worldly lifestyle. And finally, you find your community and identity among those who mock God, and they lead you down the path of destruction. It's counterintuitive to me that Jesus has come to me and drink, and I think that's an individual response. But in actuality, one of the primary ways that we plant ourselves beside Jesus' stream of living water and drink deeply from it is that we root ourselves in godly community. He says, if you're thirsty, root yourself in godly community. I think of those seasons of my life when I felt most fruitful, most joyful, most rooted in the Lord. And I can look back and identify it was not because my circumstances were easy. It was not because my strength perfectly matched up with the challenges that I was encountering. It was because in those chapters of my life, I was part of a vibrant Christian community that was learning and growing, that was doing life together and being on mission together. As I look back of each of those seasons, I can see the faces of those with whom I was in a small group community with, whether they were college students or the faces of tired, frazzled parents or rough-around-the-edges men who were coming together after work to joyfully chase Jesus together. In the fall, we as the church are going to invite you once again to consider to be part of such a small group community. As we come out of these two years of loneliness and isolation and pandemic, I think this is a key way that God is inviting us to thrive. So prepare your hearts now. Clear space in your schedule. Exercise your relational muscles Stretch out your emotional capacity. Because if you want to thrive, you have to plant yourself in God's community. And if this is something that stirs something deep in your soul and you want to help lead or facilitate one of these groups come the fall, talk to me, talk to Julie Brannon. We are going to be doing some practical training and equipping of life group leaders so that we can have this little tribe, this little fellowship that we can journey through this life with, that can help us put our roots down deep, not into the culture's common sense or our best guess and wisdom, but into the real, what did Jesus say? Words of eternal life. So if we seek to thrive and not thirst, if we seek to live in that first picture and not the second, we need to change our orientation. We need to reorient by rooting ourselves in godly community, but it 
doesn't stop there. We also individually have to reorient our hearts and our minds to God's word and perspective. We need to listen less to the Jezebels in our life and more to the voice of Jesus. But his, and that's the thriving man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. My brain struggles with translating that Hebrew word Torah as law there. Because for some reason, when I see the word law, I read kind of an obsessive legalism into the text that is not there. There is no burden or oppression here. This is lightness and delight. And yes, while Torah can speak technically of the first five books of the Old Testament, it also can speak more generally of all of God's instruction and teaching and guidance. And I think that's what the psalmist is intending here. He's saying, take pleasure in and give your excited attention to God's wisdom, to God's self-disclosure, to God's insights on life and thriving. Desire, orient your focus towards what God has to say. Don't let the noise of this world or the shouts of your fears or that booming voice of condemnation that lives inside your head drown out God's still, quiet voice. It was God's speech that created us in the first place. And it will be Christ's words that put us back together once again, that make us new. So he says, hone in on Christ's teaching as you eagerly pursue God's way, God's will, God's peace. And I think oftentimes we're so thirsty because we're desperately trying to drink from other wells that won't ultimately satisfy us. In that same passage in Jeremiah, God says to him, and what now do you gain by going to Egypt and drinking the waters of the Nile? What do you gain by going to Assyria and drinking the waters of the Euphrates? All of those other waters, they won't satisfy. They won't end your thirst. Only I can. You realize our thirst is actually a gift if we can receive it as such. It's alerting us that we're living in the wrong picture, that we've lost our way. So if you're thirsty, if you're parched, if you're wilted, the most effective thing we can do is to stop and reorient, to commit once again to God's word, to God's way, and to a community of spiritual friends who will encourage us in those commitments. If you're in a thirsty moment, 
you need to get still. You need to get off your phone. You need to close your apps and all those windows on your browser. Mute all of the different voices and inputs that are vying for your attention and plant yourself quietly in God's presence. It's time for us to remember who we are. To remember whose we are. To remember that God has placed us in a spiritual family. And to recognize what it is that actually upholds us. It is the love and the grace of God. And if we, as God's people, miss this, it's all for naught. If we miss this, we will never quench our thirsts. We will never thrive. He says, come to me and drink. God invites us to delight and to meditate upon God's word, to, to rest and to ponder and to let our roots go down deep in his presence, in his family, and start drawing up nutrients and refreshment and joy and hope that can only come from a living God who loves us and saves us. A few months ago, I feel like the Lord always, when I'm faithful to sneak off and seek the Lord in quiet, it's part of my rhythm to every six months or so, I take one night away and just take a Bible and a journal, and I, I ask the Lord to, to give me a word for the next season. And I went away a few months ago, and ironically, the image that the Lord gave me was Elam, that oasis of renewal and refreshment. He says, too often, you and, and all of God's family, we... We come to this living water and we like stick our face in it. We take a big gulp, grab a couple water bottles, we fill them up, and then we start running in our own strength until we collapse. It's like, what are you doing? Stay in that place of oasis with me. Plant yourself next to that spring of living water. If you want to be a blessing, let me bless you and let it overflow. Quit trying to do it in your own strength. Quit looking to your own performance. Quit thinking that there's other solutions to what is plaguing you. You can tell you are still thirsty. They don't work. But you know what does work? My grace. And I left that retreat with this word, and it's written on a picture in my office now. It's from Psalm 36. How precious, hear it, how valuable, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And then this line is what got me. 
You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. So if you are thirsty, it's a gift. It's supposed to alert you to stop and to acknowledge that you need our gracious and loving God. And whatever you're doing, do not ignore this invitation to plant yourself in his family, to meditate on his word, to let him renew you mind, body, and soul. Don't get deeper into the desert without water. Hear his gracious invitation. Come to me and drink. Amen. Let me pray for us. So many times when we come into your presence, God, it is about remembering what you made us for. You made us to celebrate. Not because we can do it, but because you can do it. You made us to rest and to be a blessing. Not because we can manufacture it, but because your grace overwhelms us and overflows through us. May we, like Peter, stop and say, where else can we go? Where else can we go? We've tried it. I've been trying it. It doesn't work. You alone have those words of life. You alone are the Holy One of God who has the power to refresh us, the power to heal us, the power to make us new. So God, may I And may every person sitting in this church drink deeply from the river of your delights. You delight in us. We don't understand it, but we'll accept it because your love will transform us. For with you is the fountain of life. In a thirsty world, you've invited us not to be a thirsty people, but to drink deeply of your grace. Let us do so again today. In Jesus' name, amen.